In our last episode, we talked about a female character that deserved better writing, but sadly didn't get it. A female character whose entire lifespan has been notoriously controversial. So I thought to myself, how do we go the other way? Well, there's lots of examples of excellent writing involving male and female characters. But honestly, the first person I thought of was Nausicaa. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I'm no expert when it comes to Miyazaki films. They are intricate, expertly designed, with so many little details that they really, really benefit from multiple viewings. If there's one thing I'm constantly preaching on this podcast, is that you should really watch certain films, TV shows, or animes more than once. Some stories can only be truly appreciated when they're studied, deconstructed, dissected. I can't honestly say if that's the case with Miyazaki's films. Like I said, I'm no expert. I didn't grow up with them. I don't have that familiar connection that other people can claim to have. But I do know that visually, most of them harken back to simpler times. They elicit a nostalgia for places and periods that are entirely non-existent. Okay, maybe not entirely non-existent. Some of them are based on real-life locations and people, but it's the feel, the tone that these movies have that is entirely unique. It's difficult to convey with words. You really have to see them. But here I am trying to do it just the same. There's very few people out there that can honestly say that they've experienced a lifestyle that's similar to what is portrayed in some of these movies. And I think... It is very safe to say that is entirely the point. It's supposed to be wholesome, heartwarming. It's supposed to feel like home, even if you can't really quantify that notion or accept it. Then again, I think most of us can. You could have lived your entire life as a nomad, moving from place to place, never settling anywhere. And still, I would gather that nine times out of ten, you would understand this tone. You could even embrace it, make it your own. The setting of a story is as equally important as the characters that inhabit said story. Imagine Lord of the Rings taking place in Marndare, New York City. Or, what if we were to place John Wick in a galaxy far, far away? Hmm, I kind of want to see that. What would it look like? While I've no doubt that there are very good writers that could do just the thing, it's difficult to imagine it, to visualize it. In our collective minds, the settings of these stories are intricately connected to its characters. Heck, you could even say that the settings are a character unto themselves. The settings play a role in their respective stories. Full disclosure, I've yet to watch any of the Lord of the Rings movies. Never been a big fan of that particular brand of fantasy. I got none against them. The general consensus is that they're good films and I'm inclined to agree, but it's a very easy example to use. It's something that's very easy to visualize. So with all this in mind, what does the setting in Nausicaa manage to do? How is the setting connected to our characters? How does it influence the story? I think this is a good starting point. One of the most wonderful aspects of this movie is that it manages to answer some of these questions right away, and it does it in the most subtle of ways. Before we continue, I just feel I have to say this. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is a children's story. Okay, that's no secret, but it's not just aimed at children. Why do I feel the need to have to say this? Because from the beginning, and Nausicaa is the beginning, Studio Ghibli decided to tell its stories in a way that can be enjoyed by all. It's a method that feels very Pixar, which is hilarious to say because Studio Ghibli predates them. Even if their movies are squarely aimed at children, which most of them are, 
there are a lot of intricate layers to some of their stories, layers that can only be peeled away at by adults, ideas which will simply go over children's heads. I grew up with mostly Disney films. Well, Disney and Mel Brooks. While I have lots of nostalgia towards certain Disney films, not all of them, mind you, not a huge little fan of The Little Mermaid. I mean, I do fancy redheads, but Ariel is a mermaid, not a person, a story for another day. I don't have a strong urge to review Disney films at all. Yes, I am wholeheartedly aware that my last episode was technically on a Disney film, but by that definition, The Avengers is a Disney film. Yeah, that doesn't really fly, does it? You're not thinking Avengers when I say Disney film. In fact, when I say Disney film, I'm referring to Disney's catalog of classic films, and they have a lot of them. In this respect, I'm specifically speaking about their animated films. Look, I hate to say this, but it has to be said, most Disney films are simple. Now, simple is not an insult. There's nothing wrong with the concept of simple. Heck, some of the best stories ever written can be considered simple. Sometimes there's nothing to it but what we see on screen. Nothing wrong with that. However, with that simplicity, there's a trade-off. If there's nothing left to the onion, you can't really eat it anymore, can you? What I mean to say is that same principle kinda applies with Disney's animated films. By no means are they inferior, they're not bad films, but there aren't too many layers to the onion, is there? That simplicity is one of the defining traits of a lot of Disney films, and it's the reason why you don't see most adults revisiting said Disney films, scouring them, studying them, looking for deeper meanings. Sometimes it's just not there. As an adult, I don't feel a growing urge to review those Disney films. Not that I'm not going to do it, but they're not exactly high on my priority list. Let's get back on track and talk just a little bit about the setting of Nausicaa. To do that, I need to talk about the beginning of the film. If you've already seen the movie, then you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. If you haven't seen the film, spoilers ahead. Also, go check it out. It's available on Netflix Canada. I think HBO Max has the exclusive rights to them in North America, which is a shame, really, because how many people are paying for that? If you're savvy enough, you know all about VPNs. And if you truly value your privacy, you should be running a VPN. However, that's on you. I'm going to stop talking about VPNs because I'm not being sponsored by any on today's episode, or any of my episodes for that fact. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is on the slow side. Originally released in the mid-1980s, it begins with a scene of a home completely infested by large fungi and other plants. The color palette is gray, dirty, and the scene is morose. A man with a weird mass enters the room, and after examining the home and its now diseased inhabitants, he laments that the spread of the toxic jungle is growing. The scene pulls back, and we see that it's not just one home covered in the deadly fungi, it's an entire village. Right away, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind paints a world unlike anything we've seen before. A world where mankind is fighting a losing battle against this toxic jungle. A world ravaged by war. Where its survivors splinter off into groups, tribes, and kingdoms. All of this in the first five minutes. It's a bloody kids movie. And that's how it starts. The only other kids movie that I can think of that makes this kind of statement right away in the first five minutes is Wally, -E. And that triumph of a film belongs to Pixar. Why start a movie like this? It's not the most riveting of starts. If anything, it's very easy for a kid to get distracted. There's no flashy colors, no memorable dialogue, nothing to grab a child's attention. And I think it's all very intentional. Right away, the movie is rewarding those of us who are paying attention, whether you be young or old. The title credits are... 
wonderful, awe-inspiring, and I'm going to talk about them in more detail further on. The film also manages to explain some of the setting in its title credits, quickly establishing that all of this takes place in a future far removed from today's problems. I like that. It lets the story focus entirely on its characters and conflict without having to make any kind of reference to our world. A narrator delivers a few lines of exposition, but doesn't overstay his welcome. The sequence where we get an explanation of why things are the way they are, that's quick. And if you look away, you can miss it. In other words, the film is demanding you pay close enough attention. A kid's movie is demanding that the audience pay close enough attention. I like that. That's just the beginning of a film. Later on, the movie takes us to different places, different settings, that I'll be covering later on as the review continues. Aladdin, by comparison, starts with a narrator. I think The Little Mermaid starts with some sort of underwater ceremony and Ariel is not present. And Frozen? Huh, I'm gonna have to refresh my memory because I haven't the slightest clue as to how Frozen starts. All of them are visually stunning, no doubt about it. And Arabian Nights is an awesome song that I remember to this day. But again, none of them really strike a chord with me the way that Nausicaa does at the beginning of the movie. But I'm getting ahead of myself. All three previously mentioned Disney films predominantly feature a female character in a lead role. And yeah, Jasmine has a lead role, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. I want to compare how some of these female characters are perceived in comparison to Nausicaa. Aladdin and The Little Mermaid are contemporaries, in a certain sense, while Frozen is a little bit more modern. And I wonder, how do they hold up against a story that's significantly older? written by people from an entirely different culture and perspective. Let's find out. Like I said, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind starts with a somber, dark, depressing scene. A plague has overtaken a village and no one has survived. The man in the mask, who will just refer to as Lord Yupa from now on, because that's what his name is, is inspecting the home. He laments the scene before him, and his dialogue leads us to believe that this disease is a serious issue, and it's the most pressing conflict we'll encounter in the film. More on that later. It's after this scene that we get the title sequence, the main theme, all that jazz. It's during this title sequence that we get glimpses of what the world looks like, and glimpses of Nausicaa herself. We don't see her properly until after this, and she's deep inside the toxic jungle. I believe this scene is of extreme importance, and I want to analyze it, dissect it properly, so let's do so later on. In any case, she takes off in her glider to return back to her kingdom. Ah! but not before rescuing Lord Yupa from giant creepy crawlers, which the movie goes on to call Ohms. Is it Ohms or Ohms? I don't know, it'll vary. Instead of attacking it head on though, she gets close enough to stun it and then use an insect charm to produce a soothing sound, which calms the beast long enough for it to return to the toxic jungle. After that harrowing ordeal, the two of them meet up and we find out that Nausicaa is a princess and that her father, the king of the valley, is sick, quickly establishing that everything Everyone in this world is living on borrowed time. The effects of the toxic jungle spread beyond its borders, and every human can potentially get sick and die. We see her leave Lord Yupa's side and leave towards the valley. As he makes his way there, we get these wide-open shots and see the stark contrast of the toxic jungle, the empty deserts, the sea in the background, and the lush green lands of the Valley of the Wind. All of it done by hand, at a time where using a computer and animation just wasn't really done. I like that warm, fuzzy feeling I get when I see this kind of animation. I miss it. Computers make animation nowadays easier, relatively speaking. It's still very hard, and because of the demand, there's not enough animators to go around. But I digress, let's get back to the story. 
The landscape has indeed changed, and this makes sense. By our own estimates, if humanity suddenly disappeared, it would only take a few hundred years for nature to retake the cities. And by a thousand years, there may be nothing left of them besides whatever was made of stone and metal. There are no recognizable landmarks anymore, because this is not our world anymore. It plays to the strength of the story, and is consistent with the timeline we are giving. That's good world building. The whole valley looks very medieval. The clothing that the villagers wear is a reference to that. The structures also have that particular look to them. The windmills built to catch and harness the wind also play into this motif. Like I said before, the valley is lush, full of life, with green trees, a river and grapevines, and although we don't get any confirmation of this in the film, I like to think that the people of the valley are self-sufficient and have no need to trade with others, which is not to say that they are ignorant of what's happening in the outside world. Lord Yupa finally arrives and is greeted by all the other villagers. We also get to see what Nausicaa is up to because she got there first, and she's on top of a windmill fixing one of its blades. Again, we didn't catch that our little lady is smart, resourceful, and hardworking, that we make sure of it. The villagers remark to her rambunctious spirit, preferring she live a more relaxing lifestyle, and they all laugh, knowing full well that's not going to be the case. Nausicaa takes Lord Yupa to see her father, the king. The king is bedridden, and by the looks of it, has left the majority of the administrative duties up to Nausicaa. She makes most of the decisions around the valley, and they seem to be good ones. Nausicaa is beloved, not because of her stature or appearance, but her personality. She gets along with all of her subjects and works well with others. At the foot of his bed, Lord Yupa reports to the king that the adjacent kingdoms have all fallen to the toxic jungle, and those that are still active are at war with other kingdoms. When Nausicaa asks why the lord does not settle down, the old woman, who is kind of weird looking but she's there, her name is Onibaba, she mentions that the lord seeks the man of legend. She then goes on to explain that after a thousand years, a prophecy foretold that a man dressed in blue, surrounded by fields of gold, would suddenly arise and restore the land and mankind itself to its former glory. The king dismisses the story as legend. The night goes on, and this is where the story properly takes off. In the midst of a storm, an airship can be seen in the distance. This airship is in distress. Nausicaa gets on her glider to try to intercept it, but the ship is covered in bugs and crashes in the valley. Nausicaa recovers a young woman of Pegite descent, bound in chains, but she passes away. This is important. The next day, the kingdom of Tolmikia, that's another kingdom, they invade the valley, and in the chaos, the king is killed. Nausicaa is captured, but not before putting up a fight. The Tolmikian princess, a woman clad in golden armor, takes possession of the village. She calls herself Kushana, and proclaims that the Tolmikians have stolen a giant warrior from the people of Pejai. The giant warriors were shown at the beginning of the movie. They are the creatures, the weapons of mass destruction that burned up the world. Kushana then proclaims that she will use the warrior to destroy the jungle and take over the remaining kingdoms. Onibaba tells the Tolmikians that the toxic jungle has a purpose, and destroying it with fire will do them no good. When she is threatened, she rouses up the villagers by revealing that the Tolmikians have killed the king. Despite all this, Nausicaa manages to calm them down and convinces them to hold the fort. Kashana must return to Tolmikia, and she's taking Nausicaa and a few of the villagers along as hostages. Nausicaa shows Lord Yupa her secret room, which turns out to be a massive greenhouse filled with toxic plants. She has neutralized the toxin the plants emit by feeding them clean water and soil from deep inside the earth. 
she correctly deduces that it is not the plants that are poison, it is the soil. There's so much more to this scene that I want to break it down in detail a bit later, so let's just come back to it. In the morning, Kashana, her hostages, and some of the Tolmikians take off. They leave the warrior in the valley as it is too big to take with them. This seems a bit strange to me. The airship that originally transported the warrior was big enough to carry it. So why did the Tolmikians show up with smaller ships? Eh. In any case, a Pejite fighter attacks them midair and manages to sink all four Tolmikian airships. Nausicaa escapes with Krishana and Mito on the fighter that the Tolmikians stole from the valley. In the ensuing madness, the Tolmikians do manage to shoot down the Pejite fighter. This is important as it closes the first arc of the story and opens the second one. Nausicaa heads down to the toxic jungle to rescue the barge containing the rest of her people. The barge is being towed by one of the airships that was shot down, and as a result of that, it glides down to the jungle. She makes contact with them. Kushana pulls out a gun. She tries to take control of the situation. The Um show up, but Nausicaa managed to calm them down. I wonder if they're sentient. You know, the movie doesn't really tell. There's a memory, a flashback sequence of some sorts. Let's just go back to this one. She gives Mito instructions to return to the valley with the others and Kushana. Then she takes her glider and goes off to rescue the pilot. She makes contact with the pilot, but in the process, her glider is damaged and they're both caught in quicksand. When she wakes up, he introduces himself as Asbel and says that the Tolmikians stole the giant warrior and took some of their people hostage. Nausicaa goes on to tell him that she couldn't save the girl in chains. He tells her that was his sister, Estelle. As they both explore the cavern they suddenly find themselves in, Nausicaa shares her theory with Asbel. The trees of the toxic jungle purify the water, and when they die, they crystallize into the soil that falls beneath them. That soil is clean. The water underneath is also clean. In short, the toxic jungle is slowly filtering the poisons from the land. The bugs that live in the toxic jungle serve as its guardians, protecting it from those who would interfere. Asbel listens, but the reality is he's only interested in the survival of his people. They fix the glider and make their way back to Pejite, not the valley. I never understood why she decides to return him to Pejite instead of going back to the valley, but she does so anyway. When we get there, we see that the fighting between the Pejite and the Tolmikians has aggravated the land and disrupted the insects so much that the Ooms have stampeded and destroyed the capital, releasing spores. There are no visible survivors, and with the spores spreading throughout the city, it is unlikely there will be any. As they exit the city, a group of surviving Pejites land and intercept Nausicaa and Asbel. The Tolmikians are growing the warrior. Lord Yupa meets up with the returning villagers and Kushana. Kushana tells them to use the warrior and expand their kingdom. There's a really odd scene in this part of the movie where she removes her arm for some reason. Let's just move along and maybe we get back to this one. Back in Pejite, Nausicaa begs them to release her so she can return to the valley. The Pejites have other ideas. Fearful and angry, having lost the giant warrior to the Tolmikians, they hatch up a plan to lure the stampeding Ooms to the valley and kill the Tolmikians. I guess this would also destroy the giant warrior? Never mind the fact that this would also kill the villagers that reside in the valley. Nausicaa is now begging them to abandon this plan. They cannot destroy the toxic jungle, for if they do so, there will be no more clean water. She begs Asbel to act. He does hesitate a little bit, and you almost get the feeling that he's not going to do it. 
I like that the movie does this. It makes the audience feel like he's not going to help her. Like he's going to abandon her and side with his people. This is logical. He probably should abandon her. He doesn't really know her. And she's only interested in her people, not his. In his defense, he does act. He tries to help her, but is knocked out by the other Pegites. They take both of them along and make their way back to the valley. On the way there, it is now their turn to be attacked, this time by the Tlamekians. In the chaos that comes, Nausicaa is freed by Asbel's mother. She leaves the ship and reconnects with Mito and Lord Yupa. Lord Yupa actually stays on the Pegite ship fighting the Tlamekians, who have boarded the ship. Okay, yeah, by this point the story is a little bit convoluted. You have to pay attention, see who's fighting who, but we're still good. Nausicaa races off in the fighter with Mito, and we see the massive stampede of Ooms headed towards the valley. In all that span of time, the villagers have actually revolted, and successfully evacuated out of the valley. They climb the wreckage of a ship that's marooned on the beach. It looks like a giant submarine. As Nausicaa and Mito get close, they see why the Ooms are stampeding. The Pejats have screwed a baby Oom, and are dangling him in front of the insects, using him like bait. Nausicaa jumps from the fighter onto the Pejite craft that's ferrying the baby Oom and is shot in the process. The craft crashes and she recovers the baby Oom, saving it from the acidic water it's trying to crawl into. This is a really nice emotional scene. Her outfit gets covered in insect blood, which is blue. I think the Ooms are definitely sentient. That or she has the power to speak to them. Again, the movie doesn't make it clear. The Tolmekians in the distance resurrect the giant warrior and it attacks the stampeding herd. This is actually a really impressive visual and it's easy to see how these machines, these monsters, destroy the entire world. It attacks the herd twice but then it falls apart because it wasn't finished yet. I think the movie is trying to say something here but let's just go back to it later. The villagers and the Tolmekians resolve themselves to die for they cannot escape the herd. Then, Nausicaa lands in front of the charging stampeding heart with the baby Oom and is trampled. And then, suddenly, the Oom stop. Their rage subsides and they all gather around the unconscious body of Nausicaa. The baby Oom begins to scan her with its tendrils. And then all the other Ooms lift her up with their tendrils and heal her wounds. She wakes up and begins to walk on top of thousands of tendrils below her. They kind of look like wheat fields. She's lowered down. She reunites with the villagers. The Ooms go back. The village comes back to life. And the movie just ends here. That was a long plot summary. I guess I could have just said something along the lines of Warrior Princess saves her village from imperialistic invaders. And that would have made more sense. But where's the fun in that? Character development is the crux of any movie. It is the most important part of your story. If your characters don't change and grow, then what was the point of the journey? The best movies manage to develop all their main characters. This isn't easy, and it often requires multiple sequels in order to pull off. The same can be said for TV shows and animes. Most movies develop one or two main characters and show us a clear and concise character arc, while at the same time, highlighting the themes of the story and using supporting characters to enrich and enhance said story. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind does exactly that. While its story is filled with many characters, let's focus on four of the main ones. Nausicaa, the Princess of the Valley of the Wind, 
Lord Yupa, the wandering swordsman and diplomat, Kishana, the princess of Tolmikia, and Asbel, the soldier of Pejai. These four characters are directly responsible for moving the story along. Their influence is clear, and by the end of the story, they've all changed. Let's start with Nausicaa. Where do we see Nausicaa for the first time? What is she doing? Why is she in the toxic jungle? And is this question answered later on in the film? Where we see Nausicaa for the first time is one of the most important parts of the film. It's what leaves an impression. It's how we perceive her for the first time. Nausicaa is exploring the toxic jungle, not out of fun or curiosity, but because she can use the material she's gathered for tools, perhaps even for medicine. Later on, we see that she's been studying the plants. Another thing we can gather right from that first scene is that she can handle herself. The movie tells us she's a princess, but she has no honor guard. There's no bodyguards there looking out for her or protecting her. Mito may try his best to do so, but he functions less like a bodyguard and more like an assistant, an aide. She doesn't enjoy special privileges like Ariel, who can do whatever she wants with no repercussions, at least at the beginning of that movie. She's not seen as different because of her status like Anna or Elsa. Get where I'm going with this? She's a princess in name only. She handles the administrative duties of her kingdom, but only because her father is ill. Speaking of her father, the Tolmikian soldiers attack the castle and kill the king. Nausicaa attacks the soldiers when she sees her dead father. She only stops when Lord Yupa intervenes and reminds her that she can't give in to her rage, as the people of the valley are now her responsibility, so she must stay alive. She lets go of her anger when she sees the blood running down her blades, and when the situation is diffused, she passes out from this shock. I like all this, for a variety of reasons. Mostly, it's because this scene reveals one of her flaws. She lost her control and attacked the men who killed her father, and Lord Yupa had to snap her out of it. Nausicaa is no Mary Sue. She has flaws. The situation around her affects her. Nausicaa is also human, like a real person. She shows emotions. A lot of people nowadays seem to equate emotions with weakness, so they write their male or female characters in such a way that they don't act human because they're not allowed to laugh, they're not allowed to cry, to plead, to show sympathy or empathy, and that's the wrong way to go about it. That's not the case here. Going forward, she doesn't let her emotions get the best of her, but she still displays them, so let's keep going. Nausicaa and Lord Yupa meet later on in the film, and she shows him her secret room. She explains what she's doing with the spores and the plants, and I love this scene. Nausicaa is not just a pretty face or a clever girl. We see her actively studying the plants and the animals of the toxic jungle. She's intelligent. She has dreams, goals, and desires. She's doing all this in the hopes of developing a cure for her father and the other villages who are sick. I can't tell you how much I love this scene. It just grounds the characters so much. It makes them feel real. It also makes her abilities and skills feel earned. She didn't magically acquire them, she's studious. She probably had to struggle to learn how to fly, how to fight, how to work. We never see Jasmine or Anna or Elsa ever do anything remotely like this. Disney actually acknowledged this and retcons Jasmine in the live action movie. They change her costume and proceed to add scenes in the movie that focus on her intelligence. Ariel is precocious and curious, 
but never learns anything about what she gathers on the ocean. Instead, she trusts a seagull to educate her. Yeah, I'm serious. In the movie, Nausicaa's flashbacks and her connection with the Um play a pivotal role. Her kindness and her connection to the Ooms is there from the beginning. It's an emotional scene, and I think it's supposed to play out to something bigger. To be honest with you, I didn't really understand it in its entirety, but I do know that it's important. It may be foreshadowing that she's the man of the legend, the one set to walk on golden fields who would restore man to his former glory. Not sure, but it's a nice scene. Speaking of nice scenes, let's talk about her sacrifice and the culmination of this story. By the end of the movie, we know that she's going to try to stop the stampeding herd of ooms, but we don't know if she's going to succeed or not. When she's trampled and it looks like she's died, it's a genuine moment. First time I watched it, I asked myself why. Why she did it if it wasn't going to work. I think a lot of us did. I don't think she knew it was going to work. She just hoped it would. I think that's why it's such a great ending. Speaking of great endings, here's another thing I loved about this film. There was no forced romantic subplot. The first time I ever watched this film, as we get introduced to Aspeld, I rolled my eyes, as I was fully expecting the movie to cram some sort of half-baked romantic subplot between Asbel and Nausicaa. And then, it doesn't do that. That's great. I was genuinely surprised and elated. Look, don't get me wrong, I don't mind romance when it's done right. But that there be the key word. It has to be done right. Jasmine's story has her falling in love with Aladdin. A lot of her character development actually revolves around this. Ariel falls in love with that one dude, what's his name? And she makes a deal with the devil to do so. Anna wants to marry some dude she's known for all of five minutes, and the way to subvert that expectation is super lame. I was so glad that this wasn't the case here. We could keep going with all the little things Nausicaa of the Valley of the Windows, right? But let's move on. Lord Yupa has the least amount of character development of all the characters that I chose, but is still a vital part of the story. So, where do we see him at the beginning of the film? Well, we can make a few educated guesses as to what this says about him. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, he is the first character we see. We see him in a village that has been ravaged by the spores of the toxic jungle. We can assume that he is courageous, well-traveled. He has no escorts and prefers to travel alone. He likes to explore. That's how he acquires the fox squirrel that becomes Nausicaa's pet. He is well known, as the soldiers of Tomika quickly recognize him by his voice and acknowledge his skill. Is he a man of war? Can't really say. The movie doesn't give us enough information. What it does tell us about him is that he's searching for someone. Even if the king dismisses the man of legend, Onibaba tells us that the reason Lord Yupa can't settle down is because he genuinely believes he can find the man of legend. At the end of the movie, it is safe to assume that Lord Yupa has succeeded and that he's now ready to stay in one place. But that's just an assumption. Moving on, how does Lord Yupa help out Nausicaa in this story? It's Lord Yupa that actually manages to calm down Nausicaa after she loses her composure when she finds her father. He talks her down even takes a sword in his arm in order to do so. He makes the right call and helps her see reason. No point in fighting just yet. Later on, he comforts her when she feels distressed about the action she took. Again, he gives her advice as to what the best course of action is at the moment. He doesn't try to take over when the king is killed, but rather seeks to guide Nausicaa. 
Later on, he assaults the Tomekian forces that try to invade the Pejite ship and takes the ship back almost by himself, relying on his swordsmanship. Glad that wasn't all talk. So, where does he end up? Well, he does arrive back at the valley and manages to see Nausicaa rise from the grave. At least that's what the movie was trying to imply. We don't see much of him afterwards. Maybe he decides to stay in the valley. Or he takes off again. Who can really say? Kushana is an interesting case. She's the armor princess of Tomikia. Where do we see Kushana for the first time? Well, she arrives in the valley with an invading force. Her sole purpose to take the giant warrior, take back the earth, and defend her kingdom from many who would oppose her. She goes as far as to say that she wants to establish her own kingdom and defy the old man who ruled Tomikia. So, how are her plans foiled as the story goes along? Well, when she leaves the valley for the first time with Nausicaa and her people in tow as hostages, it's actually Asbel who manages to shoot her down, and in the process, he kills a bunch of her men. The movie doesn't shy from this. Then she goes back to the valley, courtesy of Nausicaa, and she gets there just in time to see her remaining soldiers get routed by the villagers and escape. It's only her arrival that manages to boost the morale of the men, and they get the upper hand. If only for a while. The truth is, the Pejite plan would have destroyed all her forces, destroyed the valley, destroyed the villagers, and oh yeah, she probably would have died there too. It's true that she woke up the giant warrior and was able to use him to attack, but that didn't really do much, did it? So where does she end up? Well, ultimately, it's the bravery of Nausicaa's actions that save her life. In the prologue, we see her board an airship, and presumably she leaves, maybe on good terms. Maybe not. She did fail to secure the giant warrior. Perhaps she leaves with her pride wounded. Can't really see her face as she leaves, and after the credits roll, we only see images. Not the best of arcs, but it's still an arc. Asbel's arc is limited as well, but we do see him grow somewhat, so let's ask the questions. Asbel starts his role in the story as the Pejite fighter who brings down the Tomekian airships. He gets shot down because he gets distracted, mostly because of Nausicaa, and the next time we see him, it's in the toxic jungle as the insects are about to eat him. When he gets trapped in the caverns below with Nausicaa, he starts to come around to the idea that maybe violence and brute force aren't the answer. But he's still entirely not sure. It's only when he sees the destruction of the Pejai capital by the Ums that he changes his mind. He decides to help Nausicaa escape, and we see him arrive at the end, after Nausicaa has stopped the stampede. There's an arc there. You gotta look for it, but it's there. Both the Pejites and the Tomekians resort to violence and war in order to settle their disputes. It's true that their concerns are legitimate, as both factions seem to genuinely care about the future of their peoples, but as the movie goes on, we come to see those actions contradict the ways of the land, the ways of the wind, and both factions gain nothing as a result. I feel like the movie's trying to say something here. So let's explore a few of these themes. I'm not the kind of person that's looking for themes and ideas everywhere we go. You can do that if you want, and lots of people do, and they come away with the wildest of takes. But Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind does have a message it's trying to convey to its audience, and it would be criminal of me not to say anything about it. Other people have made a better case when it comes to these ideas, so I'll keep it brief. First and foremost, it's the idea of man versus nature. From the beginning, we see that man has gone to war against one another, and their actions have destroyed and poisoned the earth. To the point where food grows sporadically in certain places, the land is poisoned, and the toxic jungle has begun to overtake everything. 
even a thousand years later, with generations to meditate on all their actions, man hasn't really changed. They're still going to war. They're still fighting. Nothing has changed because they haven't changed. And the land is responding to all this. While I don't believe that our current world will ever reach that kind of state, the scenario painted in Nausicaa is entirely believable, if a bit optimistic. I really don't think mankind would survive for a thousand years after a war that disastrous. We're too soft. We don't have it in us to survive like that. I think the message is pretty clear here. The second theme that the movie seems to want to push across, and does so with great success, is the idea of collaboration. Nausicaa and the people of the Valley of the Wind believe in coexisting with the toxic jungle. They know they can't fight it, but they can keep it at bay and outlast it. In the movie, we see Nausicaa explain that the toxic jungle is actually serving a purpose, purifying the water beneath their wells and removing the poisons from the earth. No other kingdom that's shown in the movie believes in this, and as a result of it, their efforts to contain the poisons go by the wayside. While the people of the Valley of the Wind fear the bugs, Nausicaa treats them with respect, and as a result, gets them to leave the valley alone for the most part. I wonder if it's something we can ever achieve, coexistence with nature. Who knows? Even the death of the giant warrior is a message to us all. We shouldn't place too much faith in our creations. They may not be able to save us in the end. I wonder if that's the message that we're trying to go for. What is the movie trying to make you feel? What is the movie trying to make me feel? Well, in a word, it was awe. When I saw the title credit sequence for the first time, that's what I felt. I felt this deep connection to the planet. I love that sequence where she's flying around. They took great care to show you, to really show you the scale of our planet. And that's what it looks like. The Earth is big. And we're small in comparison. Later on, when you see Nausicaa communicating with the whom, do they really understand what she's saying? I think they were sentient. I felt this warm, fuzzy feeling. That same feeling I described at the beginning. The animation was a real throwback, and I thoroughly enjoyed that as well. This movie was a labor of love, and we see that in all the detail that was put into it. So did I like it? Well, yeah. For all the reasons I just gave above, it's an intricate story about the future of mankind and the paths we ought to be thinking about taking now. Nausicaa is a wonderful role model for a lot of little girls. She's brave, compassionate, kind, studious, a woman of action, and at the same time she's feminine, understands her limits, knows she has flaws. They really went out of their way to make her as endearing as possible. So in conclusion, the measure of any good story is the journey the character goes on. But that's not the whole truth. It also depends on whether the character changes when they go on that journey. Nausicaa fights to prevent the destruction of her home, of her people. And she comes out different as a result of it. Her interactions with the Ohm revealed her deep buried memories. And we see her become the man of legend. The world may not have changed with her actions, and there's still a long way to go before mankind can return to their former glory. And this part kind of bugs me a little bit. Why return to how things used to be, when you can carve out a future that's so much better? 
maybe that's a lesson that Nausicaa is trying to teach us, but I don't know. It's a nice dream that mankind may one day achieve, but not right now. Maybe in the future. This was a long one, and if you stuck around to the end, that is awesome. Thank you so very much for your support. We're going to keep them coming, if it's only one day a week. The journey is hard, and the road is long. Beware the wastelands, my friends.